I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John and chapter 4. And we will be continuing where we left off two weeks ago. And we've been studying through John for many months now, verse by verse. And this morning we are in chapter 4 at verse 16. And this happens to be the midsection of, of this narrative. John describing what took place one afternoon. Jesus at a well and a woman there who was drawing water. And uh, consider this the second episode of three. We dealt with the first two weeks ago. And two weeks from now we'll look at the third. But today's has to do with worship. And we use those three words to describe the three of these. Water was the first episode, the water of life, living water. And when we left uh, that study, she's interested in the water if it means she doesn't have to come back to the well any longer. Today has to do with worship and the question having to do with where are we supposed to worship, this mountain or in Jerusalem. And then couple of weeks from now has to do with witness after she leaves her water pot and goes back into town and brings others to come hear what this man has to say. But let me begin reading to you in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman or ma'am, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain... Nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's ask the Lord to bless what we just read. Father in heaven, with our Bibles open, we ask that you open our hearts, open our eyes first, that we might understand what these things mean. And then, Lord, we ask that you give us the strength to be obedient to where we need to change. We thank you for time together with your word and each other. And we ask this in your strong name. Amen. Well, we've been talking about worship so far. We've sung about worship. That is itself a form of worship. And if you paid attention to your bulletin this morning... Something that has not changed since uh, who knows when. There is some reference at the beginning of what you see as the components of what we're doing together this morning is, is under the heading service of worship. 
or worship service, you might call it. All the things uh, falling under a call to worship. Uh, that's what we're doing here this morning. I hope that's why we're here. Uh, in a room this size, I would suppose there might be others here for other reasons. Uh, but usually you keep those to yourself because this is, after all, a worship service. Now, if that's what we're here to do, there's a huge list of things uh, that would be our options to do otherwise that we're not doing right now. We could be at home. You could be in the bed. Uh, you wouldn't be mowing your yard, not with all the rain coming. Uh, maybe fishing to get that in before it rains you out for the rest of the day. There's a whole host of things we could be doing. But the truth is, in all likelihood, inside a church on a Sunday, the Lord's Day, even Palm Sunday, even next week, Easter Sunday, there's probably true worship going on. And if we reread the key verse to this, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers, that's what we're looking for, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The reason why we're looking for this is because it says, For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. In spirit and truth, that is true worship. In many church services, there's some not true worship going on from time to time. And it might have many noble reasons. It may be uh, parents looking for a place for their children to learn character traits. Usually a church with a strong children's program is a, is a viable option, especially those who have young children. Um, but then again, maybe it's just to keep up appearances. Or maybe it's uh, see if you can't find a business contact or two. Or to groom the ones you've already got. Uh, there's all different types of reasons we could be here. But the purpose... The reason is for true worship. Do you remember back in chapter 2 when Jesus cleansed the temple and made a big uh, mess of things? And that it was very clear he was angry. And we talked about how it's important to figure out why a person is angry if they themselves are rarely ever angry. But he was very angry. The reason why his father's house that was purposed to be a house of prayer was being used as a house of business. And it wouldn't matter if it was being used for recreation or entertainment. It's something other than what it was purposed for. And Jesus is angry on behalf of his Father, whose glory is not the center of attention in the service at the temple. That's what it's for. So he's angry because it's been co-opted for some reason or another. And God shares his glory with no one. Now here's where a good definition of worship can come in handy comes from an older word that's got two pieces in it. One we don't use much anymore. When we say the word ship, we think of a boat. But worth, the beginning part of it, is uh, what we use to assign value to something. So worship or worship is assigning worth to something. Glory and honor because it's, it's bigger, higher, higher. Uh, or more pure than, than we are. So to worship something, whether uh, it's your hobby or your spouse or a rock star or any of these other people that others seem to follow religiously on social media feeds or something like that. 
They're assigning worth to them. So when God is said as looking for those true worshipers who worship in spirit and truth, what we're learning here is that there's certain requirements of the real thing. And it has to be done the real way. And the one who set it up to begin with gets to say what that looks like. The true worship has to be on God's terms, not our own or our own making. And these are the things that we'll learn here from this passage this morning. We'll organize it around three points. I think they're clear enough from the passage, each having to do with worship. Here's your points. We'll give them to you early. Number one, Jesus knows true worship when he sees it. And this shouldn't catch us off guard. It's been a theme all through John as we've been studying. Number two, true worship must begin in response to knowledge going to have a lot to say to this lady about her worship which is not founded on the truth it's mis misinformed and then number three the father is looking for those who will worship in spirit and truth and that gets back to that key verse and what that means and the fact that God is looking for it well let's look at number one Jesus knows true worship when he sees it We'll skim back through this. Jesus said to her, go call your husband, come back. The woman says, I have no husband. He said to her, you're right in saying that, for you've had five of them, and one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. He says twice, you've spoken the truth, but not the whole story. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And we can relate to this. If someone came and gave us information about ourselves that they shouldn't have, Either they've been reading our diary or they've been snooping around and stolen our identity. Uh, but in this case, they don't have these type of things we do. He shouldn't know this. So the woman says, I perceive at least you're inspired or you know things that most people don't know. But this is not the first time nor the last time we're going to see Jesus asking invasive questions as if he's interrogating the people that... Uh, presumed to be interested in him or what he's offering. She had said, tell me more about this living water. He says, go get your husband and come back. Now, we learned this with Andrew in chapter 1, where John the Baptist introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world, and then Andrew and another disciple follow right after him. And the first thing he says to them is, what is it you're looking for? What are you seeking? Not the best thing to say for your first prospective followers, we would think. But Jesus wants to know where the motivation is. Is this for you, Andrew? Are you bettering yourself? Or is this to actually truly follow me? Because if you've got eyes to see, I'll open them. You'll see more than you ever thought you could see. You'll know more than you ever thought you could know. But it's probably not going to be what you thought you'd see or what you thought you'd know. And then later in chapter 2, with the wine running out at the wedding, Jesus' mother comes and says, we need help. And he says, what does this have to do with me? My hour hasn't come. He's, we read about his hour again. The hour is the purpose for, for why he's here. It, it involves a cross and paying for the sins of the world. And making sure wine doesn't run out at weddings doesn't really fit into that. So what is it that you want? To better yourself? Less awkwardness at this wedding? Or be involved in what I'm here to do? Nicodemus, isn't that the same way? 
He comes to Jesus in the night with questions. He'd seen him cleanse the temple. He'd never seen anything like this in his life. So he's asking. And Jesus says, you're the teacher in Israel and you don't know this stuff? You need to be born again, Nicodemus. A a total heart transplant. And the same with this woman. You want to take the next step? We're going to need to talk about your sin. The things that you are trying to avoid talking about by being here in the middle of the day when it's hot and nobody else is at the well. And it's uncomfortable. And Jesus, by revealing his knowledge of her morally messy past, Jesus discloses his more than human understanding of her background and drives directly toward her greatest need, which is the source of her hopelessness and guilt and despair. Her deepest need is her sin and the fact that she needs to be born again, which we learned is a heart transplant. Just trying to do better isn't going to save you. Someone else who can do better is going to have to do better in your place. And that'd be the work of Jesus in her life. So we left her last time uh, confused but thirsty. At this point, we see her being interrogated. Just like we learned uh, the Word of God is from Hebrews 4.12. The Word is living and sharp, sharper than any two-edged sword. It can pierce down to the dividing of your soul and your spirit and your joints and your marrow. It will cut you to expose you in order to heal you. And none of that is comfortable. And we're never promised an anesthetic, scripturally speaking. But this is what this woman is going through. It always surprises us when, when Jesus or the scripture goes toward the, the root of the problem, which is sin. And if you're ever sharing your faith with anyone else and you get to that point, it's always surprising. Why in the world would you go there? Who are you to say that you're better than me? Which is true, you're not. No one of us are any better than anyone else. Just we have better news, some of us. And that's that Jesus can take that away as the Lamb of God. But we're always surprised about it, but we shouldn't be. Because isn't that what he's here for? The Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world before he can ever help this woman. He's got to take away the sin. Expose it for what it is. Show her that she really needs a Savior. So that she can really have a right relationship with God in heaven who made her. All this has to take place as part of the process. There's no healing without cutting. There's no salvation without repentance. So look at her response. What is her response? He says, go get your husband. She says, I have no husband. And then they go back and forth a little bit where you're right. You've had five. The one you've got is not your husband. Now, was she technically correct in what she said? Was she lying? No. There's just more to the story than she's letting on. Jesus could see through it. You think we're pretty good at that too? Is that just a a normal uh, standard equipment fallen human thing that we uh, get better at as we grow and become better coverers of what's on the inside we don't want anybody to see? Pick an excuse or an example. What about sick days? Y'all get sick days? You ever use them for something other than being sick? Do you ever tell anybody, hey, I'm calling in sick today. I'm going fishing. (laughs) No, you say, I'm calling in sick. Then you hang up the phone and on your way out the door, your wife says, you're going fishing on a sick day, aren't you? 
But you say something slick like, I'm sick and tired of work, so I'm calling in. I'm going fishing. There's more to the story there. But we've got our technical ways of accounting for what we think is fair or works or sufficient. None of that stuff works with the Lord. He sees right through every bit of it. He knows a true worshiper. And he knows it without even looking. Now the word used here for husband could also mean man. And I only say that because sometimes we like to get to where we think we know this lady's story just based on what John has given us. We know enough to know that it's, that it's messy. But these could be husbands. These could be not husbands. It could be relationships. They, these could all have been husbands and they all died. She'd been widowed five times. and We don't know. But we do know that this seems to be quite a, 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 a checkered past at that. Now, rabbinic tradition disapproved of more than three marriages, even though they were legally permissible under the law that Moses wrote when you could divorce or uh, write a letter of divorcement and put your wife away. They would talk to Jesus about this, and he would tell them, you know that, that's the truth, but it wasn't always that way. That's not the way God intended it. But even then, they thought that three was enough. Uh, and then no one of religious opinion in this culture uh, approved of a common law marriage, if that's what this is. But in the gentlest possible way, and, and I do think this, Jesus commends her twice for her formal truthfulness while gently uncovering the harsh reality. You've had five. The one you're with is not your husband either. So all that to say this, God knows us better than we know ourselves. In fact, he can unwind some of the complications we've got that we don't even know we've got. Uh, he knows if we are worshipers. He knows our motives for being here, just like with Andrew or Mary or Nicodemus or the man at the pool of Bethesda we're going to find in chapter 5. He knows the hearts of these people and whether or not they're truly following him or not. Number two, true worship must be in response to knowledge. Verse 20, our fathers, this is the woman speaking, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And they're near Mount Gerizim. She might even be pointing. It's in clear sight of Jacob's well. She goes on, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus says to her, woman, and that is uh, in their culture the way we would say, ma'am. Uh, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. So he's saying at a certain point, neither of them are correct. Then he says in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. So he's saying that what... The Samaritans have done worshiping in Mount Gerizim is not correct. We worship what we know. He's saying we, the Jews. And there's a detail here that the Samaritans only thought that the first five books of the Old Testament were true. That'd be creation, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. But from Judges on, they didn't believe in any of that. Jesus is saying we have more of the story. The God did speak through the prophets. And there is quite a bit written about the fact that the temple should be in Jerusalem as God's choice. So he's saying, 
we know why we're doing what we do and you don't. And again, that's probably tough to hear. But then verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers who don't need Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem are going to worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. So let's try to pull apart what's happening here because there's a lot of back and forth and it seems that the subject matter is changing. First question to ask, is this a diversion on the part of this woman? Is she changing the subject from her relationships to theology? Last thing she says, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped over here. You say it's in Jerusalem. And a lot of commentators want to say she's dodging the issue to get as far away from that as she can. That's a possibility. I, I'm not as comfortable as some uh, commentators psychoanalyzing uh, the people we see in Scripture and trying to figure out their motives. God knows, Jesus knows, and He's working with her. It could as easily have been uh, a situation where she says, I perceive you're a prophet, and while you're here, help me with something I've been trying to find out. If these five relationships have ostracized her to gathering her water at the hot part of the day so nobody wants to meet with her, she's probably not regularly attending a group full of whitewashed church people, right? So maybe it's not as much that she's got to figure out something for her Sunday school class as she wants to know whether or not what she's believing is actually substantive or what the Jews believe, or if any of it's worth anything. This man sounds like he knows something, so I'll ask him, which is it? He basically says neither, but corrects the problems in her own tradition, or her folk religion that the Samaritans had, and then comes to the end by saying, it's spirit and it's truth, and God is looking for the right type of worship. So whether or not this is a diversion, I don't know. You worship what you do not know must have been jarring to hear. And we never like hearing that type of stuff. Do you like being told? There's a lot you don't know. But over and over and over, all through this gospel, we're hearing this over and over again. There's a lot you don't know. And if you'll come and see and allow the Lord to show you, you'll know a lot more. But how much do we know about these things had Jesus not come to this earth to show us or tell us? Nothing. So the difference in knowing nothing and something is huge. And we keep adding to that. Same as this lady here. And here's something that's worth writing down. Because this comes up so often. Sincerity is not enough to save you. It may be that this woman was sincere in her belief, which Jesus says is wrong. And if that were what got you into heaven, if your good ways do outweigh your bad and you're sincere, then all the religions get in, as long as you're sincere with it. And Jesus is going to make it very plain. I am the way, the truth, the life. And, and the boldest statement in the Bible, perhaps, no man cometh to the Father but through me. The only way. The truth and the life. So sincerity isn't enough to save you. If that was the case, just pick one and do it the best you can. But that's not what we learn in the Bible. Now notice that Jesus says that salvation is of the Jew, but an hour is coming that will make both Mount Gerizim and Jerusalem obsolete 
From this point on, true worshipers, worshipers are not identified by the attachment they have to a particular temple or a shrine or a church building to make it more modern, but by their worship of the Father and Spirit and truth made possible by His Son paying the way. So verse 23, the last part of that, for the Father seeking such people to worship Him, that's what gives us point number three. And that is simply the Father is looking for those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. So the woman said to Him, well, back up to verse 24, God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. Notice that's in parentheses. John is telling us that what she has said means that the Messiah is the one who's called Christ. And that's interesting because John's making sure all the readers understand because the Samaritans used a different word for Messiah than the Jews did. John's making it clear, talking about the same person, just with different names. She says when he comes, she knows at least this much, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. So verse 23 concluded by telling us God is looking for something. The Father is seeking or looking for those to worship Him in spirit and truth. Now, we'll go back and think our way through some things we've already learned. When Jesus is asking questions, is it because He doesn't know the answer? And He needs to ask us so we'll tell Him and then He'll know? No. No. Jesus knows all this stuff. He's not like us. I try to teach my children to ask lots of questions. That's how you learn things. Jesus knows it all already, so he doesn't need to ask questions. Similarly, when he says he's looking for something, it's not because he's lost it, like we lose our keys. I'm looking for people to worship me. I don't have enough. I'm, I'm collecting worshipers. Let's see if I can find any here. When he says he's looking for something, it's the same as saying, this is what I want. This is what I expect out of you. It's kind of like at home with uh, room inspection. Try to make sure the kids keep their things straight. Be a good steward of what we've got. Keep it neat, clean. I'm not military, but I like the way they do things. Uh, But room inspection. And I might go in there and look around and say, this isn't what I'm looking for. It's not like I'm looking for a room. I don't have one. I need to find a room. No, I'm looking for a certain thing that I expect out of them to do. This is the same with God. He's expecting that people worship Him correctly according to spirit and truth. This is what He's looking for. But it's nice to put it in those terms to think of it as Him looking for that. He's watching. He knows anyway. And we know whether or not we are or we aren't based on what he's told us we should do. So when God is seeking something, it means that he's expecting or wanting us to do what pleases him. We also see the specifics of what this worship includes. And it's mentioned twice. Two true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So what do those two things mean? And we're getting down to the point of this whole passage. Jesus has already said that God is spirit. So there's a connection there. If he's explaining God is spirit to this woman, and then he says true worship comes in spirit and in truth, there's got to be a connection between 
the spirit that God is and the spirit in which we worship in truth. Do you remember the first 18 verses? We spent a long time in that with John, his prologue. And he opened by saying, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How can you be God and with God at the same time? Well, that's our picture of part of the Trinity there. It's a mystery to it. But when we get down to verse 14, and the Word, that's Jesus, who was with God and was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. That's where we go from the realm of the abstract. Because I don't know if you can think past your birthday, or, or Abraham Lincoln, or George Washington, or way back in history class, and back and back and back. Okay, let's just like the scene in the time machine when he turns the thing backwards and everything's changing. What if you go to the point where the world disappears? Because that was before it was ever made. It's hard for us to think in forever past or forever future. That's abstract. Thinking in terms of spirits are abstract. We talk to people with words. We hear them with our ears. Talking to spirits, that's spooky stuff. We don't have reference points for that. Most of it scares us to death. And any time in the scripture that any man ever talked to God, he fell on his face. Right? So if we're ever going to learn anything about God, it's going to have to be something special. Because from what we've got to work with spirits and eternity as humans who are temporary, it's hard to do. But then there came Jesus who was God, who became man, and spoke to us as a man. So now we can learn. We can get that. We can identify with this. That's what it means to worship in spirit. And the only way we worship in spirit with God is through His Son, Jesus. That's what John is describing to us through this whole book. When you got to the last verse, verse 18... The Son, He will reveal the Father to us. Why? Because no one has ever seen God. But His Son will show Him to us. So that's the first step. Worshiping in spirit. Going from the abstract to the concrete. But then there's also the truth. And that's simply the fact that worship that's not grounded in a proper understanding of who God is falls short. How can you worship someone you don't know? How can you have a relationship with someone you don't know? How can you know something you don't know? You ever heard people say, I don't know what I don't know? It's a good way to explain the fact that you're ignorant of your ignorance, right? How do we worship in ignorance? Worship in spirit and in ignorance. I think I've seen that from time to time. Um... And you just wonder, there's got to be more to it than, than that type of thing. I, I, I don't want to make too much fun. I'll get into somebody's experience and they'll tell me, you don't know because you don't know. <laughs> right? But there's got to be some substance, some truth. So many people think that the scriptures are, require blind faith. Never in scripture do you see that. There is faith for things we can't see. Like God who is spirit. But his son we can see. This whole book is historical narrative. It all happened in space and time. With real people who saw the real Jesus. Who was the real God. That's the truth. So we worship in spirit. Anchored in the truth. The things that truly took place. 
So John is telling us we do this through Jesus. And certain things in the book are starting to come together like pieces in the puzzle. We find one, we put it in, and more of it is seen. God who is spirit that no man has ever seen, that we can't see or worship or come to or find through Jesus who describes himself as the way is also the truth who gives life. All of this comes together in the worship of Jesus. So, question. First time we ask ourselves a question. We've been asking questions of this text. We understand what this woman is saying in Jesus, but what does this mean to us? Are you the one God is looking for? He's looking as far as you're concerned or as far as you exist. Is he finding anything? Is church just something you do? Or is it something you're here for yourself? Or is this for the purpose of seeking in so many other ways to worship the Lord? Here's what I think is funny. Most people go to church. And if you ask most people who go to church, why do you go to church? They might say something similar to this. Uh, to find God. Here we're reading in church a passage that says that God's looking for us. Seems to be the other way around, doesn't it? There's not a whole lot of us looking for God. Most of the time, if we're looking for Him, it's all in response to His having looked for us to start with. Another question. Is this what you expected? You know, this woman at the well. It'd be so nice to be able to interview these people that Jesus talks to after he talks to them and he's gone. So what would you think? That was uh, God's son. He's here to save the world. Is that what you expected? No, he wanted to, me to go get my husband's. He wanted to put me through what I would avoid at all costs. Or even his mother. Before he helps me with the wedding feast, turning water into wine, which he did, he makes sure that I know the reason why he's here. Or before any ever follow him, he's making sure that it's not for their best interest, it's for his. You know, I don't, later he's going to tell people, I don't even have a house. Foxes and birds are better off than me. If you're hoping to better yourself, you're in the wrong place following me. Is this what you expected? Is, it, is this what you expected God to be looking for? He's looking for true worshipers. Where is God in this story? Sitting on a well. Talking to a woman nobody else wants anything to do with. And do you know what he does? What he actually tells her? He actually tells her what nobody's ever heard yet. Now he's been introduced as the Lamb of God. Takes away the sin of the world. And people have said, I think we've found the Messiah. But out of his lips, as far as the way John's telling the story. He has yet to... Uh, verbally in no uncertain terms identify himself as the Messiah and the big reveal you know the big roll out a woman at a well or the checkered past kind of matches up with born in a barn and introduced in a desert he's not looking to make a name for himself he's looking for others to make it for him he's looking for true worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth He's looking for glory. Why did he make man in the first place? To demonstrate his glory. Then the world fell into sin and no glory. 
So he sends his son to die to patch up that relationship for the glory. What is worship? Glorifying God. So what we learn in this passage is we came to church hoping to learn something to find out that God is looking for glory, for worship. To worship Him through the Son according to the truth that we find in Scripture. Is that what you expected? Because I think most of the problems with the American culture as far as uh, Christianity and churches as so many exist, it's backwards of that. We've been for decades now selling Jesus as a life enhancement. He'll solve your problems. He'll help you make more money. He'll help you be your best self now, or however that's described. But it's all for you, right? What we've been learning in John from the beginning is it's not about us at all. It's about the glory of God and the love He had for us that He sent His Son to pull us out of the mess that we caused and pulled on ourselves, so that we can spend eternity glorifying Him for who He is and what He's done. Now make no mistake, as an adopted heir of the God of the universe, you get it all. But not now. Now he's looking for those who will glorify him. And he's picking through the whole sea of people who are interested in glorifying themselves. Kind of like giving a gift at Christmas and finding your children spend the rest of the day playing with what you gave them rather than spending any time with you. God gave us life and we've been so enamored with our freedom and what we can do we forget to thank the one who gave us to us. But in conclusion, how much this Samaritan woman understands at this point is debatable. But again, if last time we don't know what she understands but she's at least thirsty... At this point, we don't know what she understands, but she's adding at least one more thing to being thirsty, and that is, I know that Messiah is coming. She believes the prophecies, even what she can find in the first five books of the Old Testament. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will teach us or tell us all things. This is actually a better image of Messiah than the Jews. They thought of him as a military figure. To free them from Rome. But the Samaritans looked at it as someone to answer their questions. A teacher. And then Jesus says. I who speak to you am he. For the first time in John's gospel. Jesus has unambiguously identified himself to be the Messiah. And to a Samaritan woman. Again Jesus will talk to anyone. He's always looking for true worship. Question is, has he found what he is looking for in you? What's in this for you or what's in this for him? And with that said, we'll pick up a week from now on the other side of Easter with the rest of this story. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for this glimpse into a conversation between your son and a woman at the well there's so much to learn here but 
Lord, there's so much we can turn in on ourselves and ask if it applies. You search our motives. You can see our heart. You know who the true worshipers are. Lord, we ask that you help us study your word and know more about you. The more we know about you, the deeper our worship becomes. The bigger you are. Just like John said, you increase as we decrease. And Lord, we know you're looking for true worship. In the spirit of the request, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, we worship you, but help build our worship by spirit and truth. We ask this in your name. Amen. Pray with me, please. Uh, Father, uh, we thank you for the opportunity to worship today, to fellowship and study the truth um, of the gospel. Uh, we pray for our missionaries of the week, James and Lauren Peavy. Uh, we pray you'll protect them and provide for them as they serve you in the Dominican Republic. Lord, we thank you for them and their family. Um, as we prepare to celebrate Resurrection Sunday, help us to think about what Jesus did uh, this week and what that means for each of us. Uh, what, what great love you've shown us that we can be called uh, the children of God, and so we are. May the Holy Spirit guide us, and uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.